Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenore Walters, and joining me today are Tal Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Colin Lowe, Managing Director of Kingsfleet Wealth. In the second half of 2018, net retail outflows from European equity funds available to UK investors hit £1.4 billion, a stark contrast to the £308 million net retail sales these types of funds made over the first half of 2018. Taha, you've been looking at this. Why did investors become so bearish on European equity funds in the second half of 2018? Yeah, it was quite a quite an interesting and bizarre change in fortunes for European equity funds. Um, firstly, it's, it's fair to say it's part of the wider bearishness on equities generally that we saw last year. You know, it wasn't a great year for fund sales into equity funds at all. But Europe was definitely more pronounced and that there's a few reasons why it was really impacted. Um, so you had, you know, the trade war issues and slowing global growth, which we've talked about quite a lot. And you expect that to affect emerging markets, Asia, Japan, China, etc. But actually, Europe is a big and relatively unknown victim of this. Um, it's a big trade engine for the world, kind of linking you know, the East and the West. And it has a lot of exports that go both ways. So the US and China trade war genuinely impacts its, its businesses quite a lot and earnings were revised down etc and then it has a, a huge exposure to the chinese consumer as well which is one of the big problems when all these things take a hit when china takes a hit and you know global growth slows down europe takes a very big hit too but the problem with uh, with europe is that it actually combined with domestic issues so despite um the positivity that we had in like, the european economy in 2017 and the, the markets did really well and everyone expected that to continue it just didn't and um there were, there were a few reasons why um, a lot of this is to do with the politics. You had the Italian political crisis last year that kind of transcended into the ever-ongoing banking crisis that you have in Europe. Um, French politics, you have the car industry, which is a huge, a huge industry in Europe, going through structural change, um, facing new competitors, and you know, still kind of dealing with legacy issues like the Volkswagen emission scandal and things like that. Um, also, the other thing with Europe is it doesn't have any tech, so you didn't actually have that one sector that the US and the kind of China had that helped it balance it out. Uh, tech did really well towards the the kind of second half of last year and Europe doesn't have that and so it just really really struggled under the weight of this. Okay so like a difficult six months what about going ahead and any any better prospects this year? Actually I mean this is the biggest problem this is why it suffered uh, more than other places is that um, it's why we've seen outflows is there's actually very little suggest that this is going to change. The hard economic data you get from Europe just isn't strong enough it's not the same as hard economic data you're seeing in the US and some of the underlying fundamental economic data you see in China and emerging markets which make you think actually it's probably still worth staying around because these markets might reverse. The soft data is getting worse. The PMIs are really weak. It's not really kind of enticing investors to, to back the, the big industries in Europe. Corporate earnings um, are the surprises. So corporate earnings surprises, which is when you know companies beat analyst expectations, they're um, they're below average now. They're I think about forty seven percent. The average is fifty four percent. So there's there's very little going on to actually change investors' minds about the idea of leaving Europe. The ECB, uh, the European Central Bank, sorry, is um, is in the middle of like supporting markets with low rates, but trying to figure out how it unwinds quantitative easing, and no one really knows how it's going to go. So it's just a lot of uncertainty on that on that space. But the worst thing is, is that um, Europe is cheap because of the bearish markets that we talked about. It fell eleven percent last year, but other places are still cheaper and have these better fundamentals. So it doesn't, you know, a lot of people you speak to, you say, why have you why have you divested out of Europe? And they just say, well, there's there's really no reason to stay. Okay, now 
a lot of the reasons you cited for being bearish in Europe related to economics, bar the corporate earnings. But, you know, with that in mind, even if uh, economics don't look great in Europe, are there any reasons to be positive on European equities, which is no, what uh, you invest in? Of course, yeah. And, and, and the economics is, uh, is, is a big thing because the European consumer is quite a, a big factor and the economics also help its trade with, um, with other regions, which is why it affects the corporate earnings. Um, but yes, there, there, are, there are definitely some reasons. Um, so European companies, they always run at a discount to, to US stocks, but they have a, a similar exposure to the, the kind of global growth story and the, the global economy. Um, so if you have that, you can actually see quite a, a spike in M&A activity, which is, is definitely beneficial for European shareholders. Um, but the main, the main thing is you, you get a good yield. The MSCI Europe XUK index is yielding 3.5%. You compare that to the MSCI World, um, MSCI Country World Index, so 26 um, the banking sector in Europe, obviously, been through its uh, troubles and uh, tribulations. That's you, know, you can get yields of five point five percent if you if you buy the right stocks and get the right exposure there. So you, you're getting paid to wait, which I suppose is the is a big thing. No one really knows in Europe what the kind of re-rating catalyst is ever going to be, but I suppose in the meantime, you if you as long as you're getting a decent income for a low price, then that's a good thing. So the yield is a big factor there. Okay, so do any other developed markets look in better shape than Europe? Uh, yeah, so some of the people I spoke to, they, um, they're they looking to the UK and Japan. Uh, these are the firm favourites for where the European equity and, uh, kind of allocations have been going. Asia cropped up as well, but um, it was definitely more UK and Japan. These are places that have been affected by the, the trade war story, and obviously we have Brexit in the UK, um, but they don't have the underlying kind of um, macro issues, and obviously the Asia doesn't have the political issues, although I'm getting more nervous saying that about the UK the closer we get to the 29th of March. Um, but, you know, they, they, they have a different set of circumstances. And the yield you get in the UK is higher than you can get in, in Europe. But obviously you, you have to counter in the, 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 the Brexit mm. risk there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah so um, what funds could you use to access um, UK and Japan? So with the UK, uh, the one we talk about in this week's uh, article in the magazine is the, it's an ETF. It's a, it's a passive play. It's the iShares Core FTSE 100 USITS ETF. And the main reason for this is the UK play is... It's, it's a it's, it's a generic undervaluation play rather than a, a specific industry or a specific stock play. So you you don't necessarily need stock picking skills. You don't need to pay for it. Uh, if you get the FTSE 100, you you know, and there's a re rating on UK, you will you will benefit from that. But the FTSE 100 also gives you a slight hedge against Brexit going badly because should Brexit go badly, sterling will likely depreciate, which will actually benefit FTSE 100 earnings, and therefore you get a slight protection from whatever disaster scenario you would get in a, in a hard Brexit. Okay. And if you're not totally bearish in Europe, um, what funds could you consider for getting access to those types of equities? So this, this comes back to um, kind of what I was talking about is you, you definitely want to be going for the, the income stocks. You want to be going for the high yield. That's, that's, where, that's where you're going to benefit and get paid to wait. There, there are good deals on offer. Um, so I've picked the Standard Life European Equity Income Fund. Really good exposure to the banking sector, but you know it is an active fund, so it's, it's trying to avoid the the major banking issues that the European the, the European banks have. It also has uh, exposure to consumer stocks, and again, this is a good thing. Should you see any turn in global growth or any better macro fundamentals in Europe and kind of benefits of low unemployment, the consumer stocks will do well as well. Colin, what do you think about European equities? Are they a good place to allocate to? I think part of the problem with just looking at the whole continent is the diversification across the, the nation states. So can we compare Portugal with Germany? Can we compare 
France and Italy. And so actually looking across it all as one great big basket can be really difficult. And again, probably where index investing could be quite difficult because uh, it's just allocating primarily to the largest stocks. Now, globally, those are very powerful, but there are areas within Europe which could be very strong, you know, like the exporting, like the pharmaceuticals. And uh, some of those would perhaps be the areas in which a, a, a really good um, managed equity investor could find really good opportunities. Okay. And... Um what about the risks, though? I mean, what would you know? What what are the risks that you'd highlight um, of the? Uh you know, European equities in particular these areas. Yeah, I think the issues that Tahar raised were absolutely spot on. So obviously, a sort of global trade is probably the biggest risk to Europe. If Europe is well known for its manufacturing, you know, Germany being the engine room of Europe, then once you can't export big uh, industrial goods, it's going to make life very hard and it's going to have an impact on, on companies like, like uh, those in Germany. If you prepare to take on these risks, I mean, what funds would you suggest for getting exposure to European equities? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are some very long-term consistent performers in the European equity space. So, for example, Alexander Darwall, um, managing Jupiter European. Uh, then you've got BlackRock, European Dynamic, run by Alistair Hibbert, who's been there for some time. And uh, Niall Gallagher at GAM uh, Continental Europe, although he's, he's had a, a bit of a rough trot. But again, his long-term experience is, is amazing. Obviously, uh, like you and Tarbo said, you know, there are cons as well as pros to European equities at the moment. So what other developed market equities would you suggest? Well, I, you know, the view we're taking actually is that the UK just has so many great opportunities. Um, and we just keep hearing this from global equity managers as well, that actually uh, UK equities are really underbought in global asset allocations. People are just sort of uh, taking the view that it's just too much of a risk at the moment. So they're leaving it alone. Um, so however, despite that, the London market is still the base for some of the great global businesses. Um, so, yeah, we would probably argue that the UK, and although there are some risks naturally ahead, actually some of the biggest risks could offer the greater returns. I mean, that's fair enough, but what are these risks yeah. that you have to take so to possibly the B, get these returns? Using the yeah. B word, of course, we all know yeah. it's there in the background. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, as Taha was saying, essentially, the, the, the story there is currency. And if sterling is to fall, it, so therefore the harder the Brexit outcome, potentially, the more sterling falls, the more sterling falls, the more those overseas earnings on those very big UK businesses look to be of greater value to a sterling investor. So if you're a sterling investor, potentially that is the one of the biggest opportunities that we see lying ahead. 2016 was proof of that. Okay. Now, if you, let's say, are a very long-term investor and you don't mind some wobbles along the way, aka you can take on these risks, what funds would you suggest for getting exposure to UK equities? Well, again, Taha came up with a great idea there, is which is to buy a, a passively, which obviously will keep your costs down. If you're happy to purchase active management, then we're very uh, big fans of MAN's GLG Undervalued Assets uh, Fund, uh, Henry Dixon's fund. Again, he's got a great uh, record of spotting very good cheap businesses when they are low 
in value or low in price and then seeing those turn around so that's really good if you want to play something on the market itself i don't like to use the word play i don't know why i said that but atlantic house have a very interesting fund at the atlantic house defined return funds which is an investment in structured products that in itself adds some complications but actually through last year protected clients assets really really well and if there's really good upside in large caps then atlantic house should see some some positive benefit off the back of that okay thanks colin some really interesting suggestions Last week, it was announced that Andrew Rose, long-standing manager of Schroeder Tokyo and Schroeder Japan Growth Funds, is to retire at the end of June. Taha, how have the funds performed under Mr Rose's long tenure? Uh, yeah, so he, he took over the two funds you mentioned in 2004 and 2007, respectively. And, you know, since then and today has outperformed benchmark and peers. Since 2004, when he took over Shoda Tokyo, he's returned 140% uh, versus 132 against the Topics Index, which is the main Japanese benchmark, and 105 for the IA Japan sector, the, the peer average. Um, Relative performance has actually been weaker recently because his strategy does tend to lean towards value stocks, and uh, you know that that hasn't been in favour as as we all uh, we all know. Um, his older numbers were superb, and that's what really helped him build up this persona as a, as a Japanese equity uh, stock picking star. Uh, he's one of the oldest, most experienced Japanese equity managers, uh, alongside Sarah Whiteley, who retired last year from Bailey Gifford. Um, and his style chimed well with investors. Um, you know, he uses a, a, a 300 strong list of companies and then kind of buys the ones that offer the best value on a two to three year basis. And uh, his skill was really in portfolio construction and ben- blending the right stocks together. So who's going to take over the funds in July? Uh, it's a man called Masaki Takasumi. Uh, he joined Schroeder's in 2007 and was an equity analyst, uh, mainly on Japanese tech stocks. Uh, he's been an analyst, analyst since 1994, based in Japan. Uh, he In t- 2007, he moved to London to work with Andrew Rose, uh, I suppose, on these portfolio construction skills, which uh, Andrew Rose became really famous for. So, yeah, he's been... It's been a long-term strategy by Schroeder's to make sure they had a, a replacement for he's, Mr he's Rose. He's a protégé, effectively. Yeah, protégé yeah. is exactly what you'd call it, yeah. Hmm. Okay. And um, what do analysts think about uh, the new manager? Um, slightly mixed, which is, it tends to happen these days, especially when a lot of people really appreciate the Schroeder strategy. And uh, again, other companies do this as well, of really, really managing the retirement of a, a, a star fund manager. So some people are saying, this is quite good. Uh, Mr. Takasumi is going to have access to the same analysts based in Tokyo. The Schroeder Japanese equity team is, is very strong and very big. Um, he's going to have the same stock analysis. He's got the right support structure. Nothing really should change. You know, he's learned his uh, portfolio construction skills from the man who's who's leaving, so that should be fine. Others, however, are kind of less uh, less optimistic. Not, I mean, that's a bit unfair. They just they want time to monitor his performance. Um, the fund has been put under review by Morningstar, um, a data company, and by the Advisor Center, which is a fund rating house as well. So they're just like, we appreciate the consistency that we're getting from Schroeder's, but we need time to make sure we can judge this right. Okay. Um, Colin, are you concerned um, that um, Andrew Rose is retiring? Does this put the, um, I suppose the prospects for these funds at risk? It's certainly something that obviously needs to be under review. Uh, but no, I'm not concerned he's retiring. I think I'm probably more concerned if people keep going uh, endlessly and don't have any retirement plan. I'm in the business of helping people retire, so I don't have an issue with that. Um, and actually, let's face it, managing any Japan fund over the last 15 to 20 years must have been very wearing on somebody and quite a challenge. So actually to step down 
now seems like a perfectly reasonable decision. Okay, so what should investors holding Schroeder Tokyo and Schroeder Japan Growth do? Well, their, their numbers have been great, as Taha says. Certainly over the long run, he's been a really good outperformer in a really tough market. But I wouldn't say um, there's any reason to rush to the exit, perhaps. You know, a bit like uh, Corporal Jones in Dad's Army, just don't panic. Okay. Now, if you're an investor who isn't invested in these funds, so right, you're not in, any already in them, should you still consider them as possible options? Or like some of the analysts that Taha mentioned are doing, should you sit on the sidelines and, you know, have a look for certainly maybe a few years to see what this new manager is going to do with them? I guess, yes. If you're not in that fund, don't dash into it. There might be other ways of getting into that market. I was just looking to, uh, at some stats, and, and I believe Japan is 12% of global GDP and still the third largest economy in the world. So it's not a, an area where we can avoid from an investment scenario. In fact, it's one that we do need to embrace. The issue is how do you do that? Yes, uh, one option is a really good active management uh, management facility like what you have through Schroders. The other way is maybe through a passive solution, which is actually what we do to access Japan. We use a tracker. Um, or, or of course, the other option is maybe just use it through a global fund range where managers can allocate not just in terms of stocks, but actually across countries as well. So there's lots of different ways or, or, or through a Far East fund that can incorporate Japan. Lots of different ways, but don't miss out a great opportunity in Japan. Okay, and of any Japan funds you particularly like? Uh, not Japan funds as such. As I say, the way we, we've used it is partly just because it's very difficult for managers to outperform in Japan, very similar to the US. We use uh, an iShares uh, tracker, so uh, that's the way we, 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 we uh, get into the Japanese market. But it's only 3 or 4% in there. It's not a, a vast amount. Okay. Um, just um, now looking at the wider issue of when a manager leaves a fund, you know, how concerned should investors be, you know, and what should they do? You know, how should they assess the situation and how should they, you know, kind of like take action if if necessary? Well, I think if the uh, manager is leaving because they've consistently underperformed, um, I would be asking why are you still in that fund anyway? <laughs> so uh, that's the first thing is is if we really do manage the funds in which we invest, and I mean that as individuals or as uh, as advisors, then it's our, our responsibility to just see if they're outperforming. If they continue to underperform, then I would question why you're in there anyway. If, however, it's a manager like this uh, who has actually done extremely well then I think don't rush don't make any hasty decisions just make a considered view over perhaps a six or more realistically a 12 month period Okay thank you Colin some really helpful suggestions An area in which investors have become increasingly interested in over the last few years has been funds which are variously described as socially responsible investing ethical or sustainable Colin First of all, what are socially responsible investing, ethical and sustainable funds? That was quite a mouthful, wasn't it? Trying to get all that. <laughs> Shall we call them ESG as a bit of a myth? <laughs> yeah, ESG funds. So these are really funds which are seeking to deliver uh, positive investment returns, but seeking to do so either by avoiding things which have negative impacts or things that are positive in the way in which they seek to make a difference in the world. 
Okay, and why are investors showing an increased interest in this area? Well, I think there's two reasons. There's, so that I think on the one hand, there's younger investors want to see that it's not just about profit. They want to see that each pound of capital that they are allocating, if we take it strictly back to economic terms, is actually having some good. So yes, it is invested in a profitable business, but that it's not harming the uh, ecology of the world or it's not impacting on people's rights. Or the second thing, and I think that's probably where slightly, uh, or investors who are slightly longer in the tooth, is maybe this disruptor theory. The idea that the businesses that are now coming through, particularly in technology firms, are those that are having less of an impact in causing damage to the planet. And Tesla might be an example of that. But hopefully its profitability and long-term objectives could be both beneficial to the investor and society as a whole. Okay. Now, if any of our listeners are interested in finding more about ESG, ethical, whatever you call them, funds, um, how can they go about doing this? Where can they get more information? Well, there's plenty of resource available on the internet. That's the first thing. So thankfully, we're in a a world now where those resources are available. Increasingly, though, a lot of very significant fund management companies are now issuing or offering very good, successful and well-researched ESG fund solutions. Uh, M&G have just come to the party with the Positive Impact Fund that they've only launched within the last uh, few weeks and months. Um, Beyond that, you've got firms like Lion Trust, Royal London, Rathbones, Eden Tree, and many more that have significant ESG teams. Uh, there's also, believe it or not, passive options as well. Uh, so one or two options where there's just a very simple screening applied globally, and Vanguard have an opportunity uh, there as well. So there's lots of ways of just getting additional information and research. Okay. So say you've done your research, um, I want to take the next step. Um, How can investors go about making their investment portfolios overall more ethical or socially responsible? I mean, what what are some steps, you know, main steps they should be taking? Yeah. So again, just bearing in mind those businesses that we've referred to, perhaps some of the fund management companies that have opportunities available, maybe understanding how they work. And uh, it's it's also just very important that many are now aligning themselves with a thing called the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 objectives of the United Nations to uh, remove poverty, help with education, um, and so on. Now, obviously, there's 15 others. And uh, really, the the way in which a lot of these sustainable funds are working is to try and align their objectives with these UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, now, there might be some funds that offer a simple system to negatively screen specific issues like um, carbon energy that they don't want to have an involvement there or armament production or animal testing for cosmetics. But then there'll be others that are seeking to make a positive engagement with businesses in order to make a difference. So the message that it seems to be coming through from many of these companies now is that there is no need to compromise investment returns because many of these businesses will make money as they go through these processes. Okay. Now, 
what are some of the main mistakes investors should try to avoid making um, if they're trying to make their portfolios more ESG or ethical? Yeah, it, it's difficult, really. I don't know about mistakes, um, but I suppose one of the key things is saying this is still very early days, although there have been some funds that have been running for 25, 30 years. But actually, this is becoming an increasingly mainstream opportunity now. Um, but it is still quite a broad church. Um, so as a result, the term ethical is typically being changed. Um, and that might be that just my morals and, and thinking might be broadly the same as yours, but there might be some aspects on which we disagree. So the sustainable term or global sustainability or corporate governance focus seems to be the direction of travel for most of these ESG uh, uh, investment businesses. So, yeah, the mistake might be that everything that you hold dear is going to be addressed <laughs> in uh, some of these sustainability options or ESG funds. But the direction of travel of these undoubtedly is to try to make a profit for the investor whilst doing some positive good for those who put in their money into those funds. Okay, thank you, Colin. Some really helpful tips on how to start investing in a more ethical and socially responsible way. And if you're interested in this area, also listen to our podcast of the 1st of February on Asian equity advantages and how to find good funds. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see this week's Investors Chronicle over website for more on Europe, Japan and UK equities and the management changes that showed us Japan funds. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.